Open your Bibles to Luke chapter 16. So everyone wants to know how uh, Warren Buffett invests his money. I mean, don't you want to know how he invests his money? How did this guy from Omaha, Nebraska acquire a net worth of $117 billion and become the seventh richest man in the world, seventh richest person in the world? I mean, he's got to be a shrewd money manager. I want to know what he thinks. After my dad retired, one of his hobbies for several years, we got a kick out of it. He loved watching Jim Cramer. I don't know if you remember that show. He had the show Mad Money on CNBC. Dad would camp out in front of Mad Money religiously every afternoon. I thought it was like incredibly stressful. But dad liked it. He liked to be riled up by this guy. Cramer would yell at you about stocks that he thought were awful and then yell at you about stocks he thought were great. And so dad was always talking about Kramer's latest stock pick. And actually his advice was really good. He was this shrewd money manager. Well, so last week's title was uh, A Fruit of the Spirit is Shrewdness. We wouldn't think that on the, on, at first blush that that would be a fruit of the spirit, but it, it has to be. And this week's is kind of part two in the series. It's uh, that we're to be shrewd money managers. And so just thinking about it, Jesus wants you to be that. And so the question for us as we approach our passage is like, how am I doing? Like, am I growing and being a shrewd money manager? Well, let's read uh, Luke chapter 16, one through 13 together. He, Jesus, also said to the disciples, there was a rich man who had a manager and charges were brought to him that this man was wasting his possessions. And he called him and said to him, what is this that I hear about you? Turn in the account of your management for you can no longer be my manager. And the manager said to himself, What shall I do since my master is taking the management away from me? I'm not strong enough to dig and I'm ashamed to beg. I have decided what to do so that when I am removed from management, people may receive me into their homes. So summoning his master's debtors one by one, he said to the first, how much do you owe my master? He said, a hundred measures of oil. He said to him, take your bill and sit down quickly and write 50. Then he said to another, and how much do you owe? He said, a hundred measures of wheat. He said to him, take your bill and write 80. The master commended the dishonest manager for his shrewdness, for the sons of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own generation than the sons of light. And I tell you, make friends for yourselves by means of unrighteous wealth, so that when it fails, they may receive you into eternal dwellings. One who is faithful in very little is also faithful in much. And one who is dishonest in very little is also dishonest in much. If then you have not been faithful in the unrighteous wealth, who will entrust you with eternal riches? 
And if you've not been faithful in that which is another's, who will give you that which is your own? No servant can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. And the grass withers, flowers fade, but this good word endures forever. So Jesus says a whole lot about money. In fact, Paul David Tripp observes that he talked about money more than he talked about heaven. He talked about money more than he talked about hell. In fact, 39 of his, uh, of the 39 parables he teaches, 11 of them are about money. And furthermore, just about every page of Luke's gospel is dyed with conversation about money. It's on his lips all the time. It's a very Big deal, our view of and use of money. It says a lot about what's going on inside. And so it's no wonder that Jesus applies the parable of the dishonest manager specifically to our responsibilities, not just to be shrewd in general, but to be shrewd money managers. And so if you think about yourself, am I a shrewd money manager? So let's quickly walk through the parable, really briefly, the parable of the dishonest manager. If, 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 if the parable of the prodigal son is Jesus' greatest parable, once again, the parable of the dishonest manager is Jesus' oddest, his, his strangest parable. In fact, some even go so far as to say it's unworthy of Jesus, or even so far as to say it tarnishes Jesus' character. In fact, all the way back in the fourth century, Julian the Apostate, Emperor of Rome, who tried to get Rome back worshiping the Roman deities again and leave Christianity to the side, says, can you believe this parable? I mean, who, what, what kind of guy teaches a parable like that? How can Jesus praise such a crooked guy? How can he applaud the manager's self-interested action? But... That's the genius of parables, the genius of the way Jesus, is, Jesus teaches us. They, they, they're meant to have a hook to them. They're meant to shake us up, to get under our skin, and this one really does rub us the wrong way. But the fact that Jesus highlights this good quality in this guy that has so many bad qualities, causes that good quality to stand out even more. Uh, and then the fact that a man like him has such a good quality uh, for his like, self-serving priorities, that the sense is how much more should we manifest that good quality for our God-honoring and others-oriented priorities? And then, you know, I've just been thinking this week, and then maybe I'm just more like him than I want to admit. And so it gets under my skin to see this guy and that motion of, of trying to get what I want for my own future. Again, notice that verse one, Jesus is speaking to disciples. He shifted his audience to disciples. This isn't a parable about entering the kingdom of God. You don't, you're not justified by shrewdness. Go to chapter 15 and talk about entering the kingdom of God. This is about living in the kingdom of God and God's upside down kingdom. If, if, 
if I've been saved by such a radically, extravagantly generous God, what does that mean for me? So this wealthy landowner receives various reports and charges against his manager that the steward is wasting his possessions. The idea is he's squandering his money in perks and privileges, just like the younger son squandered his inheritance in, in parties. The word is the same, we're meant to compare them. And evidently the accusations are so self-evident, so serious, the manager doesn't even try to defend himself. And the master fires him on the spot. I mean, it's bad. So the manager, faced with his plush lifestyle, coming to a screeching halt, his comfortable world caving in all around him, it gets your attention that he doesn't just lose his head, he doesn't just give up, he does, but rather he gets a grip on himself. He sets himself to thinking, to figuring out a way forward, and all of a sudden the light bulb comes on, he says, I've got it, I know what to do, I've got a plan. He's a wily guy. So he realizes that his window of opportunity is very narrow. He's gotta act now before word leaks out to everyone. Everyone's gonna find out that he was fired for his delinquency and excess. So he has to act now. He hatches a plan so that his master's debtors will open their homes to him and probably also down the line help him find another job. And so the plan makes sense because of the reciprocity ethic in Greco-Roman culture that had influenced even Palestine that it was a matter of honor that if someone did you a favor, that you did them a favor, and that's just how the culture worked. You're doing favors for each other all the time. Additionally, it makes sense because of who the master is. And we have all these clues about the character of the master. He's a just man. He fired his wasteful manager, and yet he's a merciful man. He could have put him in prison, and he doesn't. He's also a master whose servants respect enough to give him reports of a manager who's ruining his business practices. And therefore, he's one that would have good relationships with his renters. So without either his master or his master's debtors being aware of his plan, the manager calls as many of his master's debtors in He summons them as if he's still the agent, one by one, into his office, and he drastically reduces what they owe his master. And this was not unheard of. Certain market conditions, environmental conditions would necessitate that. He he presents it like his master is lowering their loan, but he's the one that kind of induced him to do so. It presents him in a very favorable light. And so for the two instances given, he reduces their debt by 500 denarii, about a year, more than a year and a half of day laboring work. So he does it very quickly. So he goes from mismanagement to outright fraud and theft. It's this con work he does, a sting he does. So when the master gets his books back from his dishonest manager, he checks them out, (laughs) all of a sudden he... You know, you see, he's going line by line, going down his books. So he just goes, I can't, no way. Like, you just have to sit back and marvel. Like, he, I can't believe he got me. Like, he got me all those years, now he's got me again. I'm stuck, there's nothing 
I can do because the debtors or renters have already gone out in the villages. They've already reported the good news of such a generous and bountiful master landlord. The good fortune that their debts are reduced because they're big debts. They affect a lot of people. They're not just family debts. They're business debts. And everybody's so grateful and celebrating the generosity of the landlord. And if he exposes the fraud of the manager and voids the new contracts, the villager's joy is going to turn to sorrow and maybe anger. And the master's going to look stingy and tight-fisted. And he has a good relationship with his renters. And he doesn't want that. He wants to be merciful and generous. So he's stuck. And so verse 8, the master commended the dishonest manager for his shrewdness. He doesn't praise the dishonest manager for his dishonesty, but rather praises the dishonest manager for his shrewdness. It's quite a a word. It entails wisdom and, and prudence, astuteness, cleverness, savviness, to know what to do in a given situation. Before the urgent crisis he found himself in, he was clear-headed, appraised the situation, and acted decisively and in a forward-looking way to secure his own well-being and his own future, the life he wanted. So in verse 8b, that's how Jesus applies the parable. He says... The sons of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own generation than with than the sons of light. And it's a rebuke. What he's saying to us is unbelievers, worldly people, tend to be shrewder in accomplishing their limited, temporal, self-centered goals than are believers, godly people, in accomplishing their unlimited, eternal others-oriented, God-glorifying goals that just mean business a little bit more than we may mean business. Before the urgency of the present crisis, Jesus is saying, with short lives, with a narrow window of opportunity, we, we tend to lack the clear-headedness, awareness, decisiveness, future-oriented perspective that we of all people living on the face of the earth ought to have. Worldly people tend to throw all their gifts and all their skills and all their resources toward achieving a very this-worldly future, whereas believers often, we don't exert the same energy with respect to eternity, towards the then, towards heaven, towards glory, and all that entails. It gets your attention that that would be the case, that the example brings it out stronger. And so in addition to the fruit of the spirit of love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control, we ought to add shrewdness. Because one day, given time is short, hell is real, heaven is real, that one day we'll stand before our redeemer, and as Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5.10, we will give an account of the trust he commended to us. And so we should act shrewdly, wisely, diligently, creatively to take advantage of all our opportunities to grow in grace 
and to seize all our chances to help others come to know our great Redeemer. And so then in verses 9 through 13, Paul, uh, excuse me, Luke applies that specifically to money. He urges us to become shrewd money managers. That's how he wants us to think of this shrewdness in a particular way. And so in verse 9, his first statement is he urges us to use money as a resource. As a resource, that's all it is. And so he compares and contrasts the dishonest steward with the faithful disciple. Verse four, the dishonest steward fraudulently puts money in the pockets of his master's debtors so that when he's dismissed, they, the debtors, will feel honor bound to welcome him into their homes. And in verse nine, the faithful disciple makes, makes friends with people by giving money to help them in their needs so that when his money fails at death, they, those he's helped, those friends he made with his money will welcome him not into houses here, but into an eternal home. It's skene, it's the word for tabernacle. It, the very presence of God. So note, Jesus says several things here. First, in itself, money has only limited value. It has value, but only limited value. There's the moment at which it becomes worthless, and that moment it becomes worthless is when we die. You, sure, many of you read Steve Jobs' last words really depressing words. It's a long deal. He says, I reached the pinnacle of a success in the business world. In others' eyes, my life is an epitome of success. However, aside from work, I have little joy. In the end, wealth is only a fact of life that I'm accustomed to. At this moment, lying on my sickbed and recalling my whole life, I realize that all the recognition and wealth that I took so much pride in have paled and become meaningless in the face of impending death. It's just very limited. Compare that to Tim Keller, one of Tim Keller's last words, which I really appreciate, just short and sweet. As death is imminent, he looks at those closest to him and says, there's no downside for me in leaving. Not in the slightest. There's no downside. Second, money is dangerous. We have to recognize that. It's dangerous. I feel it. Jesus calls it the mammon of unrighteousness. Mammon comes from Hebrew Aramaic. It literally means that in which one puts one's trust. Doesn't that get your attention? Came to be wealth because we tend to put our trust in wealth. So we see that there's a danger it has over our hearts. We easily start trusting it for life. And that respect then for it's called the mammon of unrighteousness not to say money in itself is evil it's not it's just a resource but rather to warn that wealth in the hands of sinful people fallen hearts is just seductive it can slowly surreptitiously send our hearts to become bend our hearts to become selfish and greedy so that we care more about money than people and we even take advantage of people to get more money it's just it becomes idolatrous third Money is an instrument to be invested. Again, we're to be shrewd money managers. Jesus wants that out of us. We are to consider return on investment. 
We invest in people in need, the full gamut of need, fallen need, misery, lostness, and sin. We invest, we give generously to people suffering the hard effects of the fall and for people lost in sin to come to know the Redeemer. We want them to know the Father described in the preceding parable, the parable of the prodigal father, one who pursues, seeks out sinners to show them an extravagant generosity, a profligate grace, who gives all he has, the greatest treasure he has, his own beloved son, that we can enter into his home and enjoy eternal riches. We are seeking a return on investment. Even more, there is a reciprocity ethic here. We saw that earlier in the manager, but it's an amazing truth. It either means that those we help gather at the great gates of glory to welcome us in and to thank us for the way that we were a blessing to them in our use of our treasures. Or it's a way of speaking of God. Sometimes it's kind of this magisterial plural that God would welcome us into glory and give us eternal riches into his own tabernacle in his presence and give a great party for how we used our time, our talents, our treasures. Either way. I like the idea most recently spoken by Chris Vogel, who's MA's church planting and vitality coordinator. He says, budget is the church's vision written in numbers. Budget is the church's vision written in numbers. I mean, you could say that for your family too. My family budget is what we think is important, written in numbers. And so we're thinking through our church, you know, we're so thankful as we are to our church to be generous in our mission support. It's a call for us to press in with that mindset that we want to reflect an extravagantly generous God for eternal things. Well then, uh, Jesus, from verse nine, he goes, second, money, from verse 10 and 11, 12, money is a trust. It's a crucial aspect of our stewardship. So it's a resource and it's also a trust. It's an aspect of our stewardship. And so we're to be honest, not dishonest stewards. Like we're to evaluate ourselves. Am I squandering or am I stewarding? Am I representing him well in my use of wealth? Am I using wealth to my limited self-serving goals or to God's otherworldly unlimited goals? So verse 10 is a well-known principle. If you aren't faithful in small things, we can't be faithful in great things. There's always that lie we believe that the little things don't matter, it's the big things that matter. Like when the time comes, I'll make the right decision. But then I look at my life and I say, well, there's all kind of little fudging that I do in the small things that are creating a different kind of character. I remember watching a show one time about a guy on death row. He'd done heinous things, terrible things, and he looked at his interviewer and said, well, it all started with this lie I told back in fifth grade. You know, and something so minimal, but it created a character that opened the door for other Sins, graver sins. We, we get hardened into the way we do things. But on the flip side, God ch- 
cherishes small acts of obedience. Like a, a cup of water that we could give someone that to us, we could give it or take it. To God, it's, it's priceless. It's a small thing that prepares us for greater things. A, a child giving a small portion of his money to work to the church's efforts helps create a character that I want to be involved in Jesus' kingdom with what he's given me. Character is formed such that we act out of character in weightier situations. The, the business world functions that way. An employee starts out with smaller responsibilities in view of greater responsibilities. God's saying that's just the way it works. If you want to be entrusted with bigger things, be faithful in the smaller things. In verse 11, he applies that to money. So it's, it gets your attention that money is the very little thing. Like money is the small thing. Like something we think is so great. In God's perspective, it, it's the small thing. It's your training ground. Like I'm giving you money. Steward it. Learn to steward it. Because whatever money represents for you here, it's only a faint reflection of true riches, which I will entrust to you later. It, true riches are our heavenly reward for faithful service. Now, it's the privilege of being entrusted with more responsibility in glory. And Luke's gonna talk about that in chapter 19 even more. And so verse 12 makes this additional point, which is interesting. He goes, right now you're stewards of what God has given you. We're entrusted with it to be shrewd for Jesus' kingdom, but in glory, we're gonna be given true riches that are actually our possession. Like we won't steward it, it'll be ours. Like we'll be entrusted, it's like a, a, a son or a daughter whose you know, father or mother has a big business and is grooming them to take over the enterprise. And there's a transition period where they're representing their father or mother in business practices, but just as a steward, but one day it's yours. In the same way, the idea is that we're being nurtured and discipled and trained, mentored now, so that one day what we steward is gonna be ours. It's gonna be a possession that you own. And that's a huge truth that we can't really try to get our minds around. What all does that mean for us? But that's what God's saying to us. So we steward, it's a resource and then it's a trust. And then third, it's not just a, a resource and a trust, but we have to go back to say it's also a threat because it wants to be your master. And a, a servant or a slave can't give unqualified, sincere, devoted service to two masters. It just doesn't work. You can't work two jobs as a servant or slave. You're, you're serving one or the other. And I always have to go, that statement always makes me think of my dad again because he was a really good golfer, but his dad was even a better golfer. And so my dad was playing in a youth tournament in high school. I think it was first round he did really well and he was excited after the first round. He was leading the field. He decides to go swimming all afternoon after playing golf. And so the next day, you know, he messed up his timing and the next day he just couldn't play. Like he had no touch. And his dad came to him and just said, son, no servant can serve two masters. You swim or you play golf. And, um, but we know this is the case. We can't 
in our fallen, idolatrous world with our hearts prone to serve idols, money is always looking to be our master. And that's whether we have it or we don't have it. Whether we have a lot of it or we have not much of it, it wants our hearts. It wants to make us think about it, dream about it, plan for it. And really, it's the devil wants our hearts and skillfully uses money to get them. And so we are pressed with this idea, how do we root out the idol of money? Which in some form or fashion, we all have to deal with. We can't not, it's a big part of our life. You don't just root out an idol, you replace an idol. It has to be replaced, our hearts are gonna worship, so we have to have something else to worship. A void will be occupied by an idol, so we want something to fill that space, and more and more we see that has to be the gospel, it has to be going to chapter 15 and seeing a father with such extravagant generosity. We have to daily regard Jesus as our priceless treasure. He's our riches, and so riches can be a good thing and not an ultimate thing. And then we can consume it, we can replace it, we can, we can start manifesting more and more just the mindset of God and say, I want to be a shrewd manager with this smaller thing. I want to, I want to give like you give. I want to be open-handed like you're open-handed. I want to invest in eternal riches. I want my, my treasure to be where I want my heart to be. And I want to exchange earthly currency for the currency of heaven. I want to be changed. I want my heart to be yours. And so we worship a God who's always giving. He's always giving. He's always generous. He's always large-hearted towards us. He's never stingy towards us. And that's the gospel of an incalculably generous God. And to give us that greatest gift of his son, to provide us with all the righteousness we'll ever need a treasure laid in our hands and to take away all our unrighteousness that we just constantly are generating because he himself, the rich, became poor so that you through his poverty might become rich, that you might have through the gift of faith, open-handed beggars with nothing can receive true riches. You could receive such things that don't have a price tag, that such things like being forgiven and being declared righteous, and being made a son or a daughter of God, being preserved all the way through life, and being ushered into glory one day with a whole lot of joy and celebration for all the little things that we've sought to do just to give a token of what our great Redeemer has done for us. And so might this even more mold our mindset with respect to what we have? And might we have this kind of joy that God wants us to have and let's practice being shrewd money managers. Even as you have, even as you have, in a host of different ways, you have. And it pleases the Lord the way you have. It might motivate us to even take further steps in reflecting God's heart in this way. Amen, let's stand.